Welcome to the Stories We Don't Tell, a podcast about storytelling. My name is Stephen Hostetter, uh, and I am here with Joshua Strabell as part of our ongoing, or ongoing, sure, ongoing. I don't know why I'm saying ongoing, because it's the first of a short series of interviews about storytelling uh, within the deeper context of people's lives and work. And so to, to open up, Josh, just tell us a little about yourself. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my name is Joshua Strabell. Um, I guess in context of what we're talking about today, my biography would be I am Inuit on my mom's side. I'm white on my father's side. I grew up in Keswick, Ontario, which is a small town about 45 minutes north of Toronto. I grew up with the white side of my family. Um, so growing up, you know, my family was white. My cousins were white. My teachers were white. My coaches were white. Everybody in my town was white. I, I really thought I was white for a very long time. Uh, my father, he always ensured that I had a connection to, to my mother's side of the culture. I didn't know her growing up. So he would collect me like these soapstone sculptures that he ended up giving to me on my 18th birthday. And uh, they weren't made by anybody. He thought they were. Uh, but it's, <laughs> it's the thing. It's the gesture that counts. And with that as well, he would always buy me things like uh, he, he loved coin collections. So there was one called Tunic Time. It's uh, There's an event in, in a calorie called Tunic. And um, he had got me like that coin collection of it. And so he always wanted to ensure that I was in read, but he never forced the identity upon me. And it wasn't until I started getting a bit older that I realized that people were treating me differently. You know, it, it, it ended up being just small at first. I, I think as a child, you don't really recognize that you're treated differently according to the color of your skin. You know, my fam- like my cousins always reminded me, and my friends too, but it would be offhand most of the time. I don't think there was a lot of malicious intent in it, but it really affects how, how you see yourself and how you see that part of yourself. And Inuit, you know, I, I didn't meet other Inuit until I was much older. And, um, you know, as we're represented in popular culture, it's we're, we're seen as a, as a community to be laughed at. And I remember, you know, being like 12 years old and my, you know, friends at the time, they kept singing that, you know, gay Eskimo song to me from Mad TV. You know, so you see like that part of your culture is something to be sort of ashamed of and to be laughed at. And uh, my mom not being a part of my life always caused me a great deal of pain. And so I had a huge negative association with my Inuit identity growing up. Eventually, I think it was uh, when I turned 18, my father, he had actually really started to push me to accept my culture. Not so much as, you know, go out there and, and, and learn about it. But as I was becoming an adult and was applying for school and, you know, going out on my own, he said, you're going to receive, you know, health benefits, things like that. If you have your status, which uh, was also confusion. And we don't have status. Mm. Um, there are three different legislative categories of indigenous people in Canada, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, and the laws governing them are all very different. Um, but we are covered under the same plan, which is non-insured health benefits that are given to each of the legislative classes. And so um, there are four different Arctic regions in the north. I am a beneficiary of Nunavut and um, the organization we have in Toronto here is called, called Toronto Mute, and so we would say Nunavut, essentially to say, you know, we're from Nunavut. I have an enrollment card through that, and so it's essentially says that I'm a beneficiary under the land claims agreement of Nunavut. Um, in that, we don't have tax exemption. That's a that's a thing you know, we don't have, and there's a lot of confusion over how First Nations get it as well, but he had encouraged me to apply, you know, to get whatever dental coverage, health coverage that that, that is available to me, and so when I did that, in order to confirm that I was interviewed, they had to find my mom. I don't know why they decided to include this in the thing they had sent me, but they had found her and they confirmed I was her son. And then they said, you know, does the mother want to contact the child? And they said, no. And I remember that was like the most painful moment of my life at the time because I learned that my mom was alive. She was out there and she didn't want to meet me. And, and just not to interrupt you because I'm now riveted, but 
this was just like they did this almost outside of your asking. They sort of just did this because it was a bureaucracy and then sent you this form. Yeah. So I, I had applied for it and um, essentially they, they had to locate my mother to identify, like to confirm that I was her son. Right. I understand yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but this sort of seems like a, an incredibly difficult way for bureaucracy to sort of confirm that, you know, it's like you don't need to go through that. And that's not how anyone should be experiencing that that information almost like it's you know if like whether or not that those information like i understand their need to figure that out but it seems like a very inhumane uh way of, of, oh, of talking to you absolutely and, and and there's i mean the entire system itself is has caused a lot more harm than it's done good even within our own communities specifically within our own personal lives there's a whole term we use called lateral violence that refers to sort of the damage that we'll do physically or emotionally to each other um and blood quantum, it causes a lot of this lateral violence because you end up looking at, you know, your half, your quarter, your an eighth. Are you are you really indigenous if you're only a sixteenth of of the culture? And um, it's done so that, you know, legislatively the government can identify whether or not you deserve the benefits of, you know, being an indigenous person. And so to do that to you know confirm because a lot of people will send in applications saying, you know, I I'm blah blah blah. Uh, they need to have someone who's already enrolled to, you know, confirm that you're you're the child. And so they they had done that. And I remember I was uh, very, very angry at my father at that time for, for putting me through it. I was angry at my mother for, you know, rejecting me. And I realized as time went on that I wasn't really angry at my father. I wasn't angry at my mother. I was angry at myself for letting me, for letting it affect me that way. And I realized that for my entire life, I had looked at the Inuit side of my, of my heritage in, in a painful way and it was damaging. It was more self-harming than it was anything else. And so the only way to heal that was to develop a positive relationship. And I knew the only way to do that, that was in my, within my power at the time was to reconnect with the culture. And so I took some years, I had a three phase plan, uh, research, connect, and then build community. The research phase lasted much longer than, uh, all the others because I had a level of fear, you know, before meeting other interviewed in, so I had started researching Inuit culture and history, Canadian culture and history as well, um, not just Inuit history. And my, you know, um, justification was I didn't want to be a dumbass when I went and met right. other other Inuit for the first time. Um, but again, I, I think a lot of it had to do with fear. And, and at this time, I started writing this short story um, where the character's at the Arctic tree line. He's trying to decide which way he wants to go. And uh, it's a very short story. It's only about 1,600 words. But... I couldn't find the ending, so I sat on it for about two or three years. I the last three hundred words I um, ended up writing later on, and so at one point I had I had left McMaster and I come back home and I was working in an elementary school at the time and uh, I decided you know there's so much I was uh, I was running a before and after school program and so much of what I did in this program was teaching the kids about my background and specifically Inuit background. Uh, I think it was, you know, it was reflective of my hunger for my own culture. And I decided, you know, this now is the time to to actually meet other Inuit. So I booked time off work. I, I went up to Ottawa. I, I, I Googled things in Toronto. There's nothing in Toronto at the time. Uh, no services for Inuit. That wasn't to say that we weren't here. There was just no services for us. And right. the closest was Ottawa. And so there was a spring equinox celebration that Tunga Sivinga Inuit organization there was was hosting. And so I booked time off work, and, and at that point, I, I found the ending to my story. And so I, I finished it with the last 300 words, and 
it's sort of a call to arms for me to, to, to reconnect. And I went up and I met other Inuit and it was awesome. And then I came back and uh, didn't give up on meeting other Inuit in Toronto. There was an Inuk here named Rob Lackey. He brought all of us together for a Christmas dinner. And from there, many of us started to see the need for an organization in Toronto specifically to, to provide services for our growing population here. We applied for grant funding, we were awarded it. And that same year, Tunga Savinga Inuit were doing another spring equinox celebration. They do it annually. And the theme of that year was urban Inuit. And so I had applied to perform at it to do a dramatic reading of this short story. And I was accepted, so they brought me up to Ottawa. And I was able to uh, share this story that I had kind of finished two years prior in front of a room full of Inuit. And it was just like this kind of full circle moment. And uh, yeah, it was probably one of the most incredible moments of my life. And since then, it's just been this journey of um, recognizing that, you know, I wasn't alone in, in the experience that I had. Many Inuit that are down here in the South grew up with the same same type type of lifestyle. So um, lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> Is it the same with the same ex- like lived experience? Right, yeah. yeah, since then. And we're in that position now where we're really trying to recognize ourselves as having this unique experience. What does that mean and how can we strengthen the relationship between us down here and, and our interview up north who are moving to the south at, at you know very increasing rates. Just to, 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 to provide clarity, you are now the executive director of the Toronto chapter of this of this organization, correct? Uh, yeah, essentially. So I, I run the youth program that we have here. Okay. Um, and so the best title for that would be executive director. Um, and then we have a larger sort of association that incorporated in 2016. And so we have an eight member board. I'm a member of that board as well. Um, that board is all volunteer though. We don't, we don't have any funding that's coming in. So um, it's all very bureaucratically confusing. As and, all non-profit boards are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and, and a large part of that has to do with um, we're receiving a lot of support from an organization in Ottawa that uh, Tunga got Inuit, the same one, who mm-hmm. are really helping us build capacity here in Toronto. And the intention is, as our programs grow and our capacity to provide our services does the same, then programs that are running here will be um, like amalgamated to the Toronto Inuit Association. It will kind of separate. So they're they're kind of helping us incubate as as an organization here. Uh, but the grant that I run is through Trillium's Youth Opportunities Fund. So it's a youth led initiative. So you know everything that kind of happens within that is is run through our our youth council here. And, mm. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I normally what we do with these things is that we actually just do a whole interview and then and then we sort of listen to the story. But I almost feel like it makes more sense to have you tell the story now and then we'll come back for a brief chat afterwards. Does that make sense to you? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay, great. So uh, take it away. Aloni stood among the silence and the cold, wind whispering thoughts in his ear. The Inuk pilgrim facing off against the Arctic Tree Line Battalion. Long had he journeyed to reach this place, and he wondered if he could leave it all behind and wander bravely into the dark. The only footprints in the snow were the elliptical tracks of his snowshoes, pressing clumsily off into the distance. It was not strange for him to feel alone in this desolate wilderness, where forests met tundra. The wind began to pick up, its icy breath kissing his skin through caribou fur, as the traveler lost himself in reckless contemplation. Two worlds lay on either side of him. The weight of each had pressured him into this lonely purgatory, leaving him unsure of which way to go. He had a southern heart that betrayed his northern face. 
To his kin in the South, however, he felt like another disappointing commodity in their fast-paced consumerism who failed to offer everything that was advertised. The Wanderer had not found himself in the place of his birth, so he entertained the idea that he could find it in the place of his dreams. Perhaps now he could share in how wild the spirit becomes north of the short white spruce. A crippling fear lay north that paralyzed the traveler. He had never experienced the Arctic beyond echoes overheard from others who had experienced it. And although one of these echoes had said it was customary in northern culture, who is he to arrive unannounced into their home claiming to be their brother? He knew well that he was Inuk, but did that make him Inuit? Was it blood that made you a part of the people? He once learned that to the Inuit names and souls were synonymous, that in them the spirit of the ancestors continued to live on. What would they call him? Frobisher? Hudson? It was this fear that they would not see the reflection in his eyes that stopped his tracks in the snow at the same line as the trees. Amidst his fear was a hope that he would arrive among them as an old relative who had left on an adventure, returning as someone they used to know with a thousand stories to tell, and eager to hear the stories of what had happened while he was gone. The pilgrim passed his hours in lonely meditation, unaware until now that the shivering had begun. He had been standing still for far too long. He could almost feel his blood constricting with his shortness of breath. He needed to start moving, but where? The wind rose now from a whisper to a howl, picking up the snow until it was swirling like ghosts all around him. The homesick wanderer sought shelter in the comfort of the trees. Panicked, the thoughts in his mind froze during the blizzard, as all he could hear became the sounds of the two worlds howling ghosts screaming as he entered his ears. The small amount of exposed skin on his face seemed to split apart. He was being devoured by these ghosts, eaten alive at the valley between their kingdoms. The worlds themselves became mountains with insurmountable peaks. He wished he had never come to this place. He missed the sound of car horns and sirens. Staring into the eyes of these demons, he longed instead for the neon glow of the city and the colorful signs of department stores with people, so many people navigating through countless streets at an incredible pace. The demon screamed, fall, lay down your life and fall, as he almost lay fetal in the snow. The South had pushed him here. Yes, it was they who had brought him to this desolate wasteland, and the North held him back. They would not allow him to move forward. The demons continued to scream, fall, lay down your life and fall, so many times that the traveler fell victim to their rhythm. Embracing the ground that could soon become his tomb, tears freezing on his face, a curious thought entered his mind. Perhaps these voices weren't demons at all. The pilgrim's journey reached a moment of clarity in the storm. The South didn't push him here. It was he that brought himself. It wasn't the North that held him back. He held himself back. The ghosts weren't demons at all. In fact, they were the opposite. They were angels. Angels who weren't telling him to stay down. He heard their voices now. So loud, so melodic. It was like a song moving through his weak and shivering body, giving him strength. They sang, get up and rise. As he had laid in the snow, wishing there was a bridge between these two worlds, he realized he was already on it. His trajectory bore testimony to that fact. He was walking on the bridge. In fact, he was the bridge. At this moment, he realized he wasn't the only one. Men and women had been engineering these bridges for hundreds of years. People were the bridges between worlds. At this moment, he realized he was not like Frobisher. No, unlike the European explorer, this traveler had just charted his own Northwest Passage. His music sang, get up and rise. The song played so powerfully that he could no longer ignore it. The warrior let out a thunderous roar that swelled like the howl of a wolf above the storm. He tore himself from the comfort of the trees and charged into the fray. His soul had walked tall, far taller than the short white spruce as he dared to travel where they were afraid to go. His soul had walked taller than the summit of the mountains of the two worlds. The clumsy tracks of his snowshoes became entirely straight, graceful in their strides like a rabbit through the snow. 
The traveler returned home to a world he had never known, to reunite with a people he had never seen. The Arctic, however, showed no sympathy for his sentiments. It cared not for his sudden transformation. The spirit of the North would test his strength and his endurance. A gust of wind broke the warrior from his charge. He fell hard onto the snow and ice, the air being knocked out of his lungs. His volition was being challenged to its limit. As he struggled to reclaim his breath, he received once again the gift that creates all champions of faith, doubt. He wondered if the silence and cold would help him find his blood by spilling it. The snow began to cover his body until he believed he was being buried alive. It seemed the only thing he had found on this quest was his grave. But was this any grave for a southern man? Was this any grave for a northern man? No, this was a grave for a weak man, or an unlucky one. The warrior did not believe in chance, so if he could find one more ounce of strength in his failing body, that he could deny the cold his soul once more. The storm reached its peak, and his muses sang louder than ever. Get up and rise. His, his eyes obeyed, looking up towards the top of the world. In the distance was a colorful glow, beckoning him in the sea of ice like a siren. His hands were the next to listen, clawing the snow and pulling him closer, the snow beginning to fall off of his back. His legs would follow, inching forward so he looked like a frog crawling on the landscape. He was surrounded by the spirits of the north, his angels, his demons, and the souls of the two worlds who had long passed, all watching him decide what kind of man he would choose to be. Get up and rise, the warrior said, his spirit now obeying the call. His muscles struggled to find their proper footing as a swirling ghost danced around him. Get up and rise, he yelled once more. And as suddenly as a bolt of lightning scorches the hard earth, as slowly as thunder booms through the night sky, so too did the storm begin to stop. The ghosts had finished their ballet, their muses their symphony, and the Arctic spirit relented its ruthlessness. They all seemed to retreat into the colorful display of lights that painted the northern sky. The Yaduk pilgrim rose now so that he stood alone among the silence and the cold, facing forward like a general with the Arctic tree line battalion behind him. Long had he journeyed to reach this place, and he was ready to leave it all behind and wander bravely into the light. Thank you. Um, and since I so rarely get the opportunity to ask questions after I've heard the story, um, and like you, you mentioned, it got published, and I'm curious to know how different it felt for you to, to see it on page versus the story you speak. Like you've now told it a couple times uh, verbally, obviously, and then also there's just like this this written version that's been published. Do you feel like they actually have different qualities to them, or like is there any sort of thing you notice about the difference there? Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's the written version I hate reading so mm. much and I just, I, um, there are a lot of stylistic choices that I wouldn't make if I wrote the story now. Right. Of I course. Was, yes. As a, <laughs> at any, any sort of harsh critic of oneself from years past, you're like, why did I do that? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, wow, you, you really liked adverbs, <laughs> you know? And, um, and I was kind of like editing it as I was going there. Um, because you know, the titles I'd given to the character, like wanderer, traveler, warrior, I ended up just spamming them throughout the entire entire piece and so I was like you could have just said he there like why'd you have to specify but I, I I really liked sort of being able to describe the character um you know with like a with a pronoun as opposed to like um an actual name right 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 um it sort of gives it a universality to it a little bit yeah yeah so instead of giving him a name I was able to give him a description that you know kind of you know yeah. Anyways, um, reading it though, I, I I really enjoy reading it out loud, um, and I, I feel like I can convey a lot of the emotion that I feel 
when I think about the story and I think about the character that is just absent when when I read it without without saying it out loud and I, and I imagine other people when they when they read it themselves right yeah like they give every uh, you get the opportunity to give your to give your voice to the to the writing right yeah, yeah. the only other character character quote unquote in this is the north right it's almost like this is clearly it's like a this is so obviously a conversation between you and your own um uh, your own identity, but then also your identity is so wrapped up with uh, with the North in a, in the context, and especially from a standpoint of like sort of the North as unknown, but also as sort of home. It's like this very complex sort of dynamic that you sort of manage to weave in all around. Sort of as, again, be, as as you said, mentioned previously, it's also wrapped it into the sort of question of how do you reconnect to your culture? Yeah, and I I I'd even say that the the character sort of where he's coming from too, because he's kind of traveled from the tree line and he and he wants to go forward and. I think a large part of it too is um, not knowing what to expect as as he continues on the journey. And I'd say even now, like um, it, it was probably the best decision I ever made to to reconnect with my culture. I think I was always looking for some kind of sense of belonging um, to sort of satisfy my own identity, and I, and I believe I found that. But with that as well, I still feel like there the storm's still kind of raging. Like I don't hmm. think it's um, I don't think it's it's it's, it's you know, soften now. And you definitely feel that as you kind of the home, the homecoming, I think for, for urban Inuk is, is so important. And then when you arrive home, there's so much responsibility to heal because the issues that face Inuit are, are, are broad. There are many and they seem like hopeless endeavors until we start to understand our own strength and start to empower, power ourselves. And so, it's been extremely rewarding for me, um, and, I, and I'm very grateful and fortunate to be in a position where I can dedicate my life to healing myself through healing my community. And, and it's not something that, you know, something that's much more difficult on both ends than it sounds. But Oh, yeah, that, that sounds incredibly difficult, uh, so, it, so I can only imagine. Um, so, and it, it was interesting because you've clearly used storytelling to, begin, to in some ways to to work yourself, you work your way through this, you know, like we've talked on many versions of this podcast about the healing power of writing your own story, right. And of finding those parts of your voice, um, and sort of being able to own parts of your life through the ability to write and tell stories. And so do you find yourself coming back to writing? Are you still writing? Are you writing more? Do you find yourself sort of coming back to that? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I love writing. I recently begun my first novel, oh. uh, but, but with storytelling in, in general, I, I love, um, Indigenous author Thomas King, he he did the Massey lectures in 2003 and... Remains one of my favorite of all time. Oh, I know, I know. Um, you know, what was really cool is that he would give land acknowledgements at the beginning before it was fashionable to give land acknowledgements. Um, but he would, you know, start every single lecture with the truth about stories is, is that's all we are. And then he would end it with, um, you know, um, now you know it, so like you can't, you know... Right. So it's just, uh, but, but, but that's it is, you know, th- that's, that's the truth. And, and we are all stories. And so it becomes this way of, of framing our own lives. And I, as a, as a former student of philosophy who sought, you know, who yearned so much for objective truth just to come to the end and realize <laughs> that it's all stories. <laughs> suck it. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so storytelling became that way of, you know, actually being able to share truth. And like philosophy, especially like the search for, for objectivity. I mean, when you start getting deep into like things like Heidegger's, I feel like this is just so, 
counterintuitive to everything that that life is about to the point that even the truth in life just seems absent and void of this, you know, language that, that they're using. And so it made this return. Like I used to always go in the nonfiction section of the bookstore. Now I typically go to the, to the fiction section. And I think it's just, there's so much more truth in that. And, and, and it's not black and white. It's always messy. And I mm-hmm. think it's important to, to acknowledge that messiness and, and, and to share that and, and to be honest. And, and as we go on our own journeys, you know, to be able to share with each other that, you know, we're, we're not all strong, you know, many of us are weak, but we have these large dreams and these large hopes that we, that we want to work towards. And, and, and I think that we accomplish that through sharing our stories with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it's, I find so often that it's not even that the, the struggles and the difficulties people have or the, it, it, to, to even be able to talk about them is a way to, you know, it's, I like often. I feel like often our society sees seeing hardship or living through hardship as a sign of weakness, um, whereas in reality, the ability to sort of get through that and move forward is the, some of the most empowering and strengthening pieces you can do, um, and and you can find sort of hopefully in those in those trials a, pl- a place of you know in the storm a place of strength. You know, the, the, to to call back to your story, the sort of idea of that's the warrior who's who's calling out to you when in the times of trials and using that to move forward. Um, but any last uh, things you want to call out? Um, how can we get to know more about you, uh, your organization? It's kind of culminated in, in, in this journey, and, and I wish I had time, maybe maybe another occasion to share a traditional story that I often use um, to talk about sort of our, our present circumstances as Inuit. Um, but all of it is bound in the conception I have of home, and mm. I believe that home is bound in the relationship between circumstance and responsibility. And so if there's like a visualization for that, I would say, you know, there's like a Venn diagram, circumstance, responsibility, and in the middle of that, that's that's home. Um, and so we've recognized our own circumstances as Inuit in the South with a population that since 2006, Inuit outside the Arctic has grown 58.1%. Wow. And understanding that, you know, the reasons why we're moving South and we need to start clarifying this on our own and there are a number of opportunities that we have as Inuit down here to access resources for our communities that um, the Arctic regions can't access. You know, no one, the Nunavut organizations can't access provincial funding like we do for, for our youth organization here. And so if we have a network to empower our communities that are living in urban centers to find their own provincial funding, what we do in essence is increase the capacity that Inuit have as a whole in, in, in the country. And if we make it a mandate of all of our organizations to strengthen the relationship between northern and southern communities, we start to rebuild the relationships that have, um, you know, been severed by the legacy of colonization. And, and, and the important thing is to be able to do that ourselves and, and to empower ourselves to, to, to make these changes. And so this council is largely, um, well, I, I would say it, it is being established to begin doing that and, and empowering our communities. So I think that we're all, as Inuit, kind of in this position now where we're at, you know, the Arctic tree line. We're all trying to figure out, you know, what do we do? What do we do now? Where do we go? And and, and I would say, you know, we're, we're, we're in that storm right now. We don't know what direction we're going, but we have a lot of good ideas. And I, and I think that we're going to be working towards that together. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>
Subscribe to the Stories We Don't Tell podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about the podcast, blog, and live events, find us on Facebook or visit storieswedonttell.org.